You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, broadcasting from Cortez Island, B.C. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, what's current on Cortez and beyond. Please be aware that the views and opinions heard on this show are not necessarily those of Cortez Community Radio Society, its board, its staff, or its membership. Today I have with me in the studio Mr. Mark Lombard, who's a house designer and a builder locally, but today he's here to talk about the Cortez Forestry General Partnership. And uh, Mark has been on the board, but he's now a contract manager for the partnership, reporting to that same board. So maybe we could start out with what is the nature of the Cortez Forestry General Partnership? You know, is that a BC nonprofit or what is it? And... Um, What's your role in that? Like, what's your day-to-day? Thanks, Steve. Well, it's really good to be here. Nice to be on CKTZ. Um, and I, I should also just say the same thing that you did, that the any views that I express don't necessarily represent the board of directors or the membership of, of either the Clahoos First Nation or the co-op, but just my own today. It's a little bit informal. Um, the Cortez Forestry General Partnership was a was formed. It's a 50-50 partnership between the Clahoos First Nation and the non-native um, community on Cortez, as as represented by the Community Forest Cooperative, which has a membership that comprises about 25% of the non-native community on Cortez. So while it doesn't obviously represent everyone's views, it's a it's a it's a reasonably good effort at at a broad-based representation and membership. So the Community Forest General Partnership was formed to hold the Community Forest License on Cortez Island. And the Community Forest Program is a BC initiative where they, back in the day, about, about 20 years ago, they took a little bit of volume back from some of the larger companies that had timber forest licenses and forest licenses on the crown land of BC, and they allocated it to communities to manage as their own community forests. So... There are about there are about fifty five of them in the province. BC, uh, sorry, Cortez is one of the newer ones, and so the, the as I said earlier, the partnership was formed to hold the license. And as a licensee, we have we have an obligation to the government. There's a there are nine different objectives that the government has for community forests, but they're largely around forest stewardship, economic development, silviculture, and 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 you know tending the resource, the public resource. And as I understand it, the um, partnership is not actually a nonprofit. It is, is it a crown corporation? What is it exactly? No, the general partnership. It's a it's a rather unique business entity. In fact, it's the only general partnership in in any of the community forests in the provinces. So it's a por- a for profit business. It's incorporated as the partnership, and we have tax obligations and and the and the rest of it like a regular business. Um, we undertook a community-based planning process six years ago called the Community Forest Operating Plan, which was renamed recently to reflect uh, maybe a little bit more what it was, but the uh, Community Forest Management Objectives. And one of the central themes that came about in this community-based planning process was profit isn't the main motivator. We're not trying to make enough profit to build a swimming pool or an arena. We're trying to take the precautionary principle and get going slowly and, and gather information as we go and 
Um, so the so the the partnership is for profit, but profit isn't the main motivation. And to date, we've paid out sixty thousand dollars in profit, twenty thousand each to the Community Forest Cooperative and the Clahoos Forestry Limited Partnership three years ago, and then last year at the beginning of the year, we paid out another ten thousand to each of the partners. So the part the partners each get their half of the profit disbursement, and then they can do with that profit as they as they choose to do. We, it it it's a tricky thing to measure profit because when you when you harvest a, an area, you have to replant the area, and because we're doing very small openings and and selective logging, we let a lot less light into our openings and our clearings. And because there's more of an edge effect, the deer are able to browse a lot more, run in and out from the edge of the, of the forest and shelter and come in they, and they browse the trees. So and this is a little bit of a surprise. We didn't actually expect this, but even though selective logging is more expensive, it takes a lot longer to do the logging. It takes longer to do the falling. It takes a lot longer to do the yarding. It takes more staff and engineering time to plan it out. It also takes a lot more time and money to do the silviculture. So we have to set aside a lot of money from each harvest to, to, to tend our new seedlings until they're at the free-to-grow stage. So we're taking a very cautionary approach to dispersing profit. It's, we're not calling profit the difference between what we sell the logs for and what it costs us to log because there's a lot of uh, obligations. Also, the community forest is quite new, so we're trying to hold some money in reserve so that we can invest in infrastructure like roads, potentially in the future another log dump. And so we need to be very cautious about how much money we spend and how much we pay out of profit. And just to put a fine point on it, right now log markets are very low. There's been a slowdown globally in in, in the economic activity or, or global growth. There's also been a lot of global factors like availability of cheap fiber to China from Russia, from big blowdown events there, and some beetle kill wood that has flooded the market. So prices have been really low. And now, obviously, with the coronavirus and the and the impending slowdown of the global economy from the pandemic, we're ex- expecting prices to drop even further. There had been a little rebound this, this, fall, this spring, but they're dropping. So you know, our operation, as I said earlier, is expensive. It's expensive in every way, and it's really small, so we don't make very much profit. So we also need to hold some reserves in the bank to be able to weather this financial downturn. But you've been able so far to make your operating costs. Um, do you pay any staff? Yeah, we, we, we have made our operating costs, certainly. We have a, a healthy amount of, of, of money in reserve. Um, we don't have any staff on a payroll. We just have contract employees. We have a, a consulting forester in RPF who lives on Vancouver Island who does our site prescriptions and our forest stewardship plan and all of the, the uh, legal documents that are required to be signed by a forester, professional forester. I, I also work as a, as a contract manager, so I manage the operations and the day-to-day activities of the, of the community forest, and we also have a a forest engineer or an engineering technician who we also pay as a consulting engineer. Well, I think I'll come back to that question of uh, value added and jobs on the island a little later in the show. But I'm also interested to know um, what attracted you personally to the project. Like, what's your background in forestry? What was your qualification for being a manager? How did you get involved? <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm a seventh-generation logger. 
my my uh my grandfathers and my great grandfathers and my dad are all are all woodlot operators so i grew up logging and i grew up working both on our woodlot but also on other people's woodlots in in the community and then fast forwarding to university i i i did an undergraduate in business finance and i did a, a a graduate degree in environmental policy where i focused on climate change and, and and energy policy and also on forest policy and specifically community forests and capacity building for new community forests. So when I came to Cortez, I was sort of getting up to speed a little bit on the, the Ecoforestry Society, which was the precursor to the to the initiative that we have today. And uh, when the co-op got going, when the community forest cooperative got going, a couple of the people who were on the steering committee at the time approached me to see whether I would join the board and the rest is history. I, I jumped on, and that was, I guess it was about, that was eight years ago. So when you say um, you've been a logger, a seventh-generation logger, you're talking about, like, small family-owned woodlots. Um, That's right. Focused on sustainable harvest? Yeah, we only ever did selective logging. I, mm. We didn't do any clear-cutting. Where the, the land in timber was considered more valuable than the cleared land to flog after clear-cutting it. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. I, maybe I just got lucky in a way too, in terms of just the the model, because there were woodlots where I grew up in Nova Scotia that they were clear cutting, but it just so happened that I worked on woodlots and on our woodlot where we did selective logging. And do you know of some other projects in the region dedicated to selective logging and sustainable harvest rather than the clear cut model? I mean, I. Th- that that's a big question and it's mm-hmm. a broad scope and i think that you know when you speak to different people different people have different perspectives on what sustainable forestry means mm-hmm. you know it's a renewable resource and when you cut trees you can plant new ones so you know in terms of sustainability of of, of a of a resource or a fiber supply it's it's a different thing than when you're talking about the sustainability of habitat and ecosystems and and particularly biodiversity that live in older forests. So I think when we talk about sustainability on Cortez, we're talking about a, a range of, of things, and different people use that sustainable term differently. So certainly there are other, other organizations and other licensees and other private operations that, that are looking at different models. I don't necessarily really want to get into commenting on other other pe- what people are doing in other places because Cortez mm-hmm. is really unique being an island and no road access to mills and no, you know, the log dump is owned by a private company. And so we have our, our own series of challenges, which, which make it unique enough that while there are obviously parallels that can be drawn, I think I'm going to focus today on the Cortez mm. operation. I just wanted to briefly pause and think about the word you used, fiber, um, because, of course, there's quite a difference between a forest that produces quality wood, good lumber, and a forest that produces quick-growing fiber, you know, destined for chemical disassembly and reassembly into cardboard and paper and other such products. How do you see the the community forest project fitting into that model? Are you more dedicated to producing wood like real timber, or are you thinking about that fiber market like quick-growing trees and um, quick turnaround selling the pencils for fiber to the paper plants? Absolutely, where we are very much focused on producing high quality timber. It's uh, a central tenant in our community-based planning process, enshrined in the community forest operating plan, and now the management objectives that we want to be known for producing high quality timber. 
and the you know the fiber market where you're basically producing pulp or small logs to to go into the OSB it's highly competitive and it's very industrialized and you know some of the some of the cuts are 400 hectares all done mechanically so their costs are their costs might be even as low as one-fifth or one-sixth of our costs for extracting the the timber so we can't compete on that market and we have no interest in competing in that market and our another central tenant of our operation or our, our our island mandate i would say is is to age the forest and by choosing to age the forest we're not typically cutting young forests or younger rotation forests so we are looking to produce bigger saw logs and the bigger saw logs are usually bought by the local mills and then there's the second or third log that's a little bit smaller and maybe the local mills don't want and a lot of those go to the plywood mills in either vancouver or or nanaimo so that does get a little bit into what you would maybe call the sort of broader fiber market but at the same time we managed to keep our quality up quite well for those logs because we we put a lot of wood into firewood for the for the community so Mm -hmm. breakage and really naughty trees or ones that taper really fast or just lower quality logs we we sort those out and put them into the into the um firewood sort for the community so then our our what they call peelers like our mid-sized logs are usually quite a high quality mix and so they've actually been in fact the last time we sold um some peeler logs some fur peeler logs Two days before they left the island, we th- we got a five dollar a meter higher bid from a mill in Vancouver than the Nanaimo mill, and they went there instead because our sort is quite clean and 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 pretty good. Mm. But we wouldn't make very much money if we just did that kind of. So, do you have a a rough sense in percentages of where the wood goes? Like after you do a cut, say you do, well, you're not doing blocks, but say you do a selective cut one year. Uh, got any sense of the distribution? I do actually have a reasonably good sense of the distribution. We, our average right now is, or our our cumulative average to date is 29% of the logs have stayed on island either, and that's basically the best logs and the worst logs. So the the best logs go to local mills and they have first dibs at all the logs, which is an extremely unique opportunity. And maybe we're going to talk about the value added a little bit later, but most times small mills don't have access to buying logs. They have to either buy all the logs or none of the logs from a typical forestry operation. So 24, 25% of our logs have have gone to local mills, probably 5% of the logs, five to seven, depending on the year have gone into firewood. And then the rest leave the island. And some of the cedar logs that are not good for the local mills because they have big bark inclusions or deformities that people, most people on the island know what a, you know, a big old cedar looks like or a, it's not necessarily very good at the bottom, but it goes to the shingle mill, shingle mills on Vancouver Island. And then about half of the logs that we've sold to date, right around half of the logs have gone into the plywood market. The first couple of years they went to Nanaimo, but as I said, the last time they went to Vancouver. And then the remainder go to a, a mix of places of, of mills in Vancouver. And then I think we've maybe exported something in the order of 15% of the logs have gone outside of BC. Okay, well, that's a pretty encouraging percentage. If only 15% going outside, you know, 85% of your product is staying in BC, and a lot of it is staying right here in the Georgia Strait area. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a very nuanced thing. It's, it's um, you know, we always talk about raw log exports and how, how that's a problem and a challenge, and, and I think everybody who's 
intimately involved with the community for us and Cortez would be would agree with that at the same time because there are so many mills that have closed and because of the idiosyncrasies of the markets and and the industry that we work in there are some sorts that there's there are no domestic markets for for example a a medium grade cedar hemlock log there are no markets here for those for those logs they only are purchased in asia all of the all the licensees would sell them there that's really interesting why do you think that is mills have closed they're not necessarily a preferred species for making osb or plywood at all um the better hemlock logs go to Vancouver and they get made into 2x4s, 2x6s, 2x8s to be treated for the green treated lumber that people see, ACQ lumber. Um, but yeah, the, middle, the, the mid to low grade stuff goes to make form wood in, in Asia, largely speaking. And obviously, I'm generalizing a little bit here. There's very specific. Every time we sell logs, they go to different buyers sometimes. So it's not necessarily always the same. But So let's revisit what happens to uh, the worst logs that stay on the island. Uh, those are the ones basically destined for the firewood program. Yeah. And maybe you can describe a little bit um, like the economics of firewood and why, for example, the forestry partnership isn't just selling firewood. Um, I know and you know that that doesn't work, but maybe people listening would like to understand a little more about that. Yeah. Well, I, I the firewood topic has been something that the partnership board has talked about as much or more than anything else. And there's been times where we just have to table that discussion until the next board meeting because it's so challenging to figure out what best way to do it. Obviously, there's different ways that, that it can be done. And the, the partnership board works by consensus, which is amazing. We work really well together as a board. And if we can't come to consensus on something like how we're going to distribute the firewood, we table it until we figure something out. And basically what we've done is we've done different things, different years. The first year we, we operated, we got right into a really dry fire season in 2015. And so we couldn't have any activity happening at all in the woods anymore. We were shut down except for hauling. So we hauled and sold logging truck loads at a highly subsidized price, including delivery. We were selling them for $800 a load. Obviously, there's problems with that because one neighbor gets a logging truck load of logs and the next neighbor doesn't get any. So it's not a very equitable distribution the next year when we logged in Squirrel Cove, we sold firewood to contractors. We sold firewood to two different contractors who they basically bought individual piles of logs and then they bucked them up and sold them for firewood themselves. That obviously has problems as well because, it, it you know, it, some people would argue that the benefit then only goes to that one or that those two contractors and it doesn't get spread very widely. Other people advocate that that's a good way because it creates a little bit of a business for some people to sell you know a couple dozen loads of firewood or, or whatever the case may be we we the staff at the partnership to think that that is a reasonably good model and then what we did those two years was all of the the leftovers all of the smaller stuff that the contractors it wasn't economic for them to bother cleaning up we opened that wood up to free use permits and that's a legal system that the ministry of forest has for all licensees where once logging is done individuals members of the public can download a form fill it in and then they're entitled to go get a couple cords of firewood for, for personal use or a couple pickup truckloads is what we do. The last two years we've logged, what we've done with the firewood is instead of selling it to contractors, we've made it available to the community by putting a call out to the community for people who are elderly or in financial need or of some reason that they didn't have the means to get their own firewood. And then we made a call out for volunteers to come out and 
load the firewood, and volunteers came out with trucks. Great way to meet your neighbors and meet other people. And then we had a list of names that needed to get the firewood. And if you were a truck driver, you had your truck, you could look at the list and say, oh, I know so-and-so, that's my neighbor, I'm going to bring them a load of firewood. And then someone would hop in with them and they'd go deliver a firewood. And when they come back, then they get a a free load of firewood for their effort. And the volunteers who came to help load all get a a load of firewood because maybe they don't have a truck or whatever the case may be. And that's probably been our most successful, uh, I would say most successful project. We've gotten a lot of really positive feedback about it and it's been really fun, kind of a bit of a festive air out there. Um, and I'll just, I'll just drill into the, to the economics behind it a little tiny bit. When people buy a load of firewood on the island, typically it's $250 a cord or so. And I think most people kind of realize that most of the value in that cord is the labor that goes into bucking it, splitting it, loading it on the truck and delivering it. So the value of the wood is not very much in that $250. And I won't get into the you know, to the sources of the wood and all that stuff, but... Well, I mean, an average low-grade firewood log, it can't be worth much. Right, what, right. 15, 20 bucks, maybe? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. A, a low-grade log, a low-grade log in the market is, you know, when we've been selling in the last few years, a low-grade log in the market is probably worth, you know, I'm going to say 50 to $75 per meter cubic meter and the cubic meter is the the increment of measure Mm -hmm. that logs are typically measured in firewood is measured in cords and it takes about three cubic meters three to three and a half cubic meters to make one cord of firewood so if you say three cubic meters to a cord and a low-grade log sells for just say it's sells for 75 dollars three times 75 Mm -hmm. is 225 dollars that's the selling price for the logs. But a cord of firewood sells for two fifty for the whole load, including the labor, and we've already said that the labor is most of that price. So the firewood cutters, when we sold the firewood to in, in, in two thousand and sixteen to the contractors, we sold it to them for twenty five dollars a cord, which means we were selling them for eight dollars a cubic meter. Wow. I hope everybody who's listening could keep track of that. $75 a cubic meter for a lower grade log, three cubic meters to a cord, $225. That would be the selling cost for those lower grade logs. But when we sell it to the contractors, they're only willing to pay $25 maximum for the cord. So that means $8 a cubic Mm -hmm. meter. So when you compare $8 a cubic meter to 75, which is the selling price, it's obviously a, a huge subsidy and it's basically zero. Right. And our logging costs are anywhere from 60 to $70 a cubic meter. That's what our costs are to pay mm. the contractors and bring machinery in and do all the engineering. So it's a, it's a huge loss to sell the firewood for right. $8 a cubic meter. And so we feel that it's maybe a little bit more benefit to the island to get people to give it out for free. And to and to bring in all those other mm-hmm. benefits of the community members getting out and helping each other out and stuff. So that's sort of the way we've been doing mm-hmm. it the last little while. And I really like the um, the gleaning program, the free use permit that people can come in and get what's left over when right. the high value stuff has been yeah. taken off for market. It used to just break my heart to see the huge slash piles burning. Um, that was wood that people could have used. You know, some of that was burnable 
in your in your wood stove, and yet it was just going up in smoke. It's a really good point, Dee. We we avoid the slash piles entirely. We ask our fallers to process the wood all the way down to five inches, right in right where the tree falls, so you don't cut all the trees down and make a big pile. Each tree, as it gets cut down, all the limbs are are, are cut off, and then the tr- top is cut off. And then when the machinery goes out to work in the block to yard the logs and stack them and get them organized to haul out, they take the branches and and the tops and they put them into the low spots so that it makes like a little a little bit of a working bed for the machinery. And then the machinery goes back and forth over it, so it breaks them down and compresses them down to reduce the fuel load, the fire the forest fire fuel load, which is a, a really big concern. And 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 all of the log comes to roadside. And then we buck off the firewood log and then set the firewood log aside so there's no slash piles and there's not any any waste that way. And I'm hazarding a guess here, but I would guess that crushing action of driving the equipment back and forth across the limb pile helps to get the composting process started so that's going to rot and uh, settle down faster than it would if it was just piled. It does. It certainly does. It makes those nutrients available to the seedlings if we, if we have to plant it also protects the soil a little bit in the low spots which might otherwise get you know muddy by the skitter we basically build a little mat for the machinery mm-hmm. to work on and some people have been critical that it doesn't do as good of a job as piling up all the slash and then burning it in terms of leaving some fuel loading and i i concede that that is a, that is a concern it's you know it's probably 3 years before that 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 slash that we've sort of driven over mm-hmm. and distributed is kind of getting rotten enough that it won't really be much fuel load. And we may have to change that practice in the future if our summers continue to get drier. But for now, that's that's what we've we've been doing. But it seems like a bit of a contradiction in a way because when you say fuel load, you might as well say nutrients. It's so a complicated mix. So if you mix. burn it or haul it away, you're taking away those nutrients that would have fed the next generation of trees. So. Absolutely. there's no. That's exactly why we're doing it the way we're doing it. Yeah. And... We are also, you know, now that we've, there's so many elements to it, but now that we've kind of been going at it for a few years, we're starting to realize that Cortez Island's environmental goals and, 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 and selective harvesting goals mean that we have to create our own set of stocking standards. And stocking standards are basically standards that define how you're going to log and what you're going to do and then allows you to report on exactly what you did for the government database and most of the standards are either clear-cut or high-grade the cedar on the north coast that's those are the two main standards that we that we have and obviously what we're doing doesn't fit into either of them so we're developing our own standards and what we're realizing is that we're likely going to be doing a lot of selective logging where we leave enough trees that we don't have to replant or we cut enough trees that a new crop will grow well in sunlight and those areas would probably be the areas that have mistletoed hemlock or other reasons that we need to do some rehab, you know, cause a lot of the, a lot of the forest that was logged when it was logged in the past was clear cut and some of it grew up into nice fir and cedar, but some of it grew into hemlock. That's really mistletoed and, you know, hemlock just, just since I'm talking about it, it's, it's pretty dry here for hemlock and getting mm-hmm. drier. So the hemlock is really not thriving very well. So in areas where we're not leaving a very good forest to the next generation. Maybe those areas we would do a small, a series of small patch mm-hmm. cuts, and then plant trees in those areas. So we're we're kind of moving away a little bit from what we did the first year, which was sort of in the middle of that, where we left a lot of trees, but it wasn't too many, too much shade for the new seedlings to grow. But still, we still had a, a, an obligation to replant. Mm-hmm. We're going to move away from that and and have it a little bit more either replant and have quite a bit of sunlight or 
not replant at all on the first pass. And let those remaining trees mature and just get bigger with less competition now that you've thinned them out a bit. Yeah, and there's all kinds of academic perspective on that, whether they're going to release and grow faster and whatnot. Certainly, you know, they won't be competing for as much moisture and nutrients, but it also maintains forest cover and canopy cover and, and maintains, you know, biodiversity and, and habitat a lot a lot more than, you know, a clear-cut mm-hmm. would. So we're moving very naturally into that topic of um, woodlot management, replacement, sustainability. Maybe you could explain for the listeners um, what is the AAC or annual allowable cut? What's the relationship with the province? How much discretion do you have? Does that relationship give you enough discretion to manage it in a way that uh, seems sustainable to you? The AAC has been a really a really um, hot topic, especially in the early days, when the when the partnership applied for the for in 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 the first round of application. We didn't say specifically that we would apply for the AAC that the government was indicating would be the sustainable harvest for Cortez, which is thirteen thousand six hundred cubic meters. Well, let's just clarify that a little bit. It stands for annual allowable cut. That's right. right. But I've got the impression over time that it is almost a required cut. Like well, it's the a target. province will encourage you to cut that much. It's a target harvest rate. Okay. Yeah. So. basically the Ministry of Forest has quite sophisticated computer models that that model the growth and yield of plantations and model the growth and yield of natural regenerated stands and so they they have pretty decent data some would argue it's quite coarse data some say it would it's quite fine data a lot of it is air photo interpretation but on average they have reasonably good data to guesstimate how much is growing in the forest, and their goal is to harvest 100% of the annual growth rate in the forest. And they consider that the sustainable yield. So if a forest grows five or six cubic meters per hectare per year, and you have 10 hectares, then the sustainable yield that they would say is 50 or 60 cubic meters a year, and that would be the AAC. That would be the annual allowable cut. Going back to your initial question, we on Cortez, you know, knew that we would never be able to cut 13,600 cubic meters. We had no intention to. There was no, there was no social license for that. There, it, it was, you know, we would just deplete the best stands in the forest really, really quickly, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of decades and we'd be down to pretty small, pretty small I w- wood. I was going to comment actually there that that cut rate that the province seems to believe in it seems like they're leaving a major factor out of that uh, computation, which is the quality of 
the trees that are growing to replace that annual cut rate of theirs. I mean, the maximum growth rate that you can force out of a plantation or a forest is not necessarily going to get you the highest quality trees. And, and you know, there's a whole, there's a whole host of, of university researchers and government researchers and professional foresters with decades of experience. And, you know, when they, when they plant plantations of, say, Douglas fir, you know, they've experimented with planting 800, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, 1,700, 2,000 stems per hectare. And when they're, when they're planted more densely, they grow slower, which makes good, better, mm-hmm. tighter quality of wood. And, and it's a fascinating, over, over, over the arc of time, it used to be that there were lots of sawmills everywhere and they cut up big logs into lumber. But now there are hardly any sawmills left anywhere that cut big logs because there aren't many big logs left. Mm-hmm. So now... It's it's fascinating when markets go down. The big logs drop faster than the medium-sized logs because there's more demand for the medium-sized logs from the plywood mills or the OSB plants. So it's a very, it's a very, you know, it's a nuanced. I should I would say mm-hmm. nuanced question about quality. Um, but coming back to your original question about AAC, we were in a real conundrum because we could we didn't have the social license to cut the AAC. We didn't know exactly what we had a social license to cut. So our board decided we would try to cut 5,000 meters for the first couple of years. That number was largely informed by the work that um, the Cortez Ecoforestry Society had done with the Silva Foundation when they first were looking at the community forest. At that time, the what was M&B lands were included in, in there. Those lands are obviously not part of the community forest now. They were maybe about one-third of the overall area. So if you took out the one one third of the number that the Cortez Ecoforestry Society had spent, I think, eighty eight thousand dollars on their on their final report coming up with seventy five hundred cubic meters on the M and B and the Crown. If you took out the M and B line, it came out to about five thousand rough numbers. And since then, we've we've polished that down. It's maybe in the order of thirty five hundred, thirty six hundred, four thousand, something like that sustainable yield based on the calculations that were done by Silva and the Ecoforestry Society. So we sort of t- took 5,000 as a goal, as a, as a target goal, and that some people thought that was too much, some people thought it was not enough, and, you know, there's economic, it's expensive to log, and there's a lot of overhead just to get the equipment there and get everything going. So the more you log, the more, the less you lose or the more profit you make. Um, over the over those seven years that we've been operating, we've we've had relationships with several Ministry of Forest representatives, and some of them have been a little bit more lenient with us about putting pressure on the undercut. They call it undercut. Mm-hmm. Some people have pointed out to us that we've not cut 55,000 cubic meters of good fur, which would have been really preferable for the ministry to see in the market. But I'm really happy to say that last fall, when the Cortes Forestry General Partnership had its five-year review of the of the forest stewardship plan and had a public meeting for that review two members of staff from the ministry of forests came to cortez and they told the gathered directors and members of the public that whereas in the past the aac was the be all and end all they recognized that we're doing things differently on cortez they recognize that we're we're focused on value added getting logs to the local mill building a social license and I'm paraphrasing, but my words are probably quite close to what one of them said, is that he saw no, he could see no circumstance under which we would lose our license for not cutting our AAC. Oh, wow. And the other person who was here said that there is no 
substantial pressure from the ministry for us to cut more or to cut to try to cut the AAC. So I would say that right now we're feeling like the pressure's off in that front. Uh, we have lots of other pressure. You know, we our only revenue source is selling logs, so we need to sell logs. We have a log dump that's completely broken down and needs to be repaired that's owned by a private company that we can't use at mm-hmm. our at will which and we have really low log prices right now so we're kind of in a holding pattern trying not to spend too much money so that we can weather the storm and 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 figure out our access to selling selling logs now when you were referring to different um tracts of land on the island earlier you mentioned mmb is that matt blow mcmillan blodell you were talking about right mcmillan blodell and now that now island timberlands well it was wirehauser and then wirehauser got broken up and it became Island Timberlands, the private lands, and then Mosaic is the new entity that Island Timberlands and Timber West merged last year, and so now the new company is called Mosaic. Yet another name change. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the um, statistics of land use in terms of hectares? How much of Cortez Forest right now is community forest? How much uh, is Mosaic or MMB or whatever they're calling themselves this year? Uh, How does the land divide up? Um, the community forest is about 3,800 hectares of Cortez. It's just under 40% of the land base on the island. Um, the M&B land, they sold a little, a couple little pieces off to along Bartholomew and to the and to the um, Welltown Commons. And I think right now that their land holding is about 8.9% of the of the land on Cortez. And I I can't remember the number exactly. It might be like 1,800 hectares that they have. 1700 or 1200 or something like that. So the Community Forest Partnership actually owns a lot more land on the island now or is licensed to log a lot more land on the island now. Yeah. Than, uh, well, that's better that's a better way to mosaic. say it. We're we're the licensee. We don't mm. own it. We're 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 the licensee that's licensed to manage it and out of the 3800 hectares there are 31% of that that's netted out for being either too wet or too rocky or too steep or in the visual quality corridors you know along the lakes and along the roads and along the mostly along the water for for boaters and rec, you know recreational users so of that 3800 31% is netted out that we don't operate in either old growth management areas mm-hmm. or riparian areas and stuff like that so the land base is actually quite a bit less that we that we can operate on so let's return a little bit to the replacement and sustainability aspect how much planting are you doing we we have an obligation to replant any openings that we make that are larger than 0.1 hectare. And so we, we've planted, to date, we've planted, I know this number right off the top of my head, we've planted about uh, 14, just under 14,000 trees on the island. And what approach are you taking to the replant? Are you... Um doing multiple species? Are you doing monospecies? Just talk a little bit about um, what your strategy is for replanting. Our hands are pretty tied in the sense that the the Ministry of Forests has very strict regulations about what can be planted. Oh, really? It's it's not at all a flexible where we can try different things. We have to have, we have to, once we have an area that's been logged and needs to be reforested, we have an obligation to get a minimum standard of preferable species preferred species and there are only two preferred species and this means commercially preferred species well commercially preferred they incidentally are commercially preferred but they're the ministry regulations and that's 
Douglas fir and western red cedar. So those are our preferred species. So anytime we, we log, we have to have a minimum of those species. Now, say you make a clear cut that's 200 hectares and you have to have a minimum of a certain number of, of, of seedlings per hectare of one or two preferred species, you probably have some room to plant some other species in there. But our openings are really small, you know, like our biggest opening is three hectares. So you don't have that much flexibility to have too many different seedlings in there. Now, that said, we do mix, we do mix them. But, you know, if you plant fir and cedar all mixed together, they don't grow at the same rate. Depending on the site, one is going to outcompete the other. So you might actually have some that, that you kind of shoot yourself in the foot that don't work well. Um, so Western red cedar and, and Douglas fir are preferred species. And then we're able to plant alder and white pine as alternatives. And are you planting for a long succession? Like, would you replant one area with alder, knowing that it's going to age out after about 40 years, and then the conifers around it are going to continue? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't planted any alder yet. It's not It's not that common a practice. It is done, and there are standards for it, and there are some licensees with ex- with experience with it, and there's, there is a market for alder, but it's not something that's been done on Cortez yet. I've been, well, this is uh, hearsay more than anything, but I have been told that the alder succession is helpful in keeping down um, fungal diseases in the soil that can affect the conifers, like the firs, that uh, 30 or 40 years under alder will let those die out. But if you were to replant firs immediately, you might, as gardeners do, get into a soil disease situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't does know that if, affect your I planting? don't think, I don't. And, and I'm not an absolute expert on laminated root rot, which is one of the when it's just the fungal diseases that you're talking to with Douglas fir. Thank you for the correct term. I think it might be more than 30 or 40 years that it mm. takes, but it would be a good start to, to, to convert that. So just as an example, we're going to start planting in two weeks in the in the Green Mountain operating area where we harvested two years ago. Yeah, two years ago, just, just about two years ago. And there's a good part of it that is got a lot of root rot in it so we're not going to plant fur there just mm-hmm. because it would just wouldn't be viable the, the the prescription typically from the ministry is to pull out all the stumps where there's dug where there's root rot and let them be exposed to the air we think that's probably a pretty inexact science because you're never going to get all of the fungus that's in the right. soil just by pulling the stumps out so we're going to plant cedar in the lower area in the wetter area and instead of fur and we are just in the finishing stages of working on a, a standard with the Ministry of Forests where we can plant pine and alder instead of fir in, in the sites that are a little mm-hmm. bit too too dry for cedar. But it's tricky. The the alder also likes wet sites and it's, things are getting pretty dry and we're, you know, speaking with professionals around the coast, a lot of people are finding that alder isn't doing as well because it's getting to be too dry for alder well, to thrive. And the trees don't really care what the ministry says. Not much. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the ministry has a vast, vast amount of experience. I mean, I'm working with some people who just they just really blow my mind how much knowledge and experience they have, and and how dedicated and committed they are. And so, the ministry is a, is a, is a, is a great resource, but it's also very uh, constraining in terms of what we can do. And I mean, I I don't want to go on and on here, but I I on a, at a personal level think with climate change. You know, and, and, and forest fires and all the stuff that's happening now, we, you know, 
all bets are off and like the old models are going to have mm-hmm. to change and they're going to be the change is going to be forced on us so i think that some of the people on cortez who are experimenting with other species that can withstand withstand droughts like sequoia for example which are being experimented with on cortez on private land and do very well in california and southern oregon mm-hmm. i think those are the kind of conditions that we're we're moving towards and i think that we should be i hope that the ministry does allow us to sort of experiment with that kind of thing soon to be a little more agile, a little more responsive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm leading myself right back into economics here. Um, tree planting is a very traditional livelihood, a seasonal livelihood uh, out on the coast for decades now. So do you have a feeling for how much tree planting labor you've hired? Like, uh, are you actually creating some employment opportunity with the tree planting activity? We've been, we've hired some, we've hired four different tree planters on the, well, last time, last time we planted, we had four different tree planters and they were all Cortez folks, experienced tree planters. Two years, three years ago when we, we hired five tree planters and only one of them was a full-time resident of the island, but three out of the five were kids who grew up on Cortez and Mm -hmm. don't live here anymore, but came back at the beginning of their planting season to do our short week of planting. So it's it's uh, it's one of those things where there's stand tending every year, and everybody who wants to do that gets a, you know a couple of weeks of work out of it, and tree planting you know maybe a week or two of work. So we're not creating any like full time jobs, but it's it's a little bit of money, and it you know it pays reasonably well. We the stand tending we pay two hundred fifty dollars a day flat rate, and uh, everybody works hard and 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 likes getting out there, and so even if you only do it for ten days, it's still a pretty good little. So a pretty yeah, good little bad, gig. Not bad, especially yeah. by Cortez standards. Well, and that's the thing. On Cortez, a lot of people do a lot of different things. You know, mm-hmm. not that many people just do one one thing. And people who want to tree plant, they go off and pre-plant all over the place. You know, even if you work for a big licensee, you don't stay in one area for more than a week usually, and you go to various blocks. And mm-hmm. So speaking of livelihoods and um, helping to build a local economy got about 15 minutes here. Let's go back to that question of value added and what kind of things the community forest can spin off in terms of community economic activity. Well, I'd start by saying, Dee, that the the community forest on Cortez is offering an opportunity that's extremely rare anywhere anymore in that any local buyer can go and have first dibs at any of the logs. And it's hard for me to emphasize how, how seldom you'll find that anywhere else. Anybody who knows about the markets on Vancouver Island knows that the cedar mills are all closed now, the small ones, mm-hmm. because they they either have to buy all the wood or none of the wood. They can't buy a few logs or a few truckloads. And even back in the day, there were cedar mills that were export only. You couldn't walk in there right. and buy wood. Right. The entire output was destined for shipping out. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, as a builder... And a, and a user of lumber over the years, I know that I know how expensive lumber is off island, especially if it's got some value, some secondary processing, not just primary breakdown, which is milling, but actually planed, mm-hmm. dried, tongue and groove, all those kinds of things. It's really expensive now and getting more expensive. Beams are another thing that are getting really rare and getting, you know, really expensive. And so the, there's the sky is kind of the limit for what's available. I'll just give one anecdote. I, I deal with a flooring company in Comox that for a little while they would lend flooring. They're called, they were trying to buy FSC certified lumber and that's the forest stewardship council, which is a a chain of custody 
verification system to basically to say this wood is reasonably sustainably sourced and we've checked at all mm-hmm. at all intersections we of the, the chain, chain of custody yeah. that it's sustainably sourced. It's expensive. It's kind of like organic food. It's really expensive mm-hmm. to be FSC certified. So a lot of like a lot of small scale people aren't doing it. So now Woodland just tries to buy small scale local. And uh, I told him about the community forest, and he was really excited. And now he buys blank lumber from the Cortez Community Forest, milled by one of the local millers. And if you go to the Woodland Flooring website, there's a Cortez Island sort. It's their mid grade, their mid grade fir floor. And I think it's it's either eight ninety nine or nine ninety nine a square foot board foot for the wood, mm-hmm. not finished. So that's milled, that's, high. that's milled, dried, and planed, mm-hmm. tongue and groove. But when you sell a, a mid grade for board just from the mill, it's a dollar, maybe a dollar twenty a board foot, maybe eighty depending which mill you buy it from and w- mm-hmm. what time. But by drying it and tongue making a tongue and groove you're going from a dollar to nine dollars. Right. And the cost of running it through the kiln and running it through the planer molder might be maximum another dollar mm-hmm. cost. So we have a huge opportunity ahead of us. And I'm really excited that one of the local millers has invested in a, a planer molder in a kiln and that's up and running now and, and as of the last month we've been pl- producing in that in that from that facility, we've been producing tongue and groove, um, hemlock paneling, and 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 fur and fur roof decking. So you're thinking, even with the cost of transport off the island, that that value added could still give a healthy margin to someone undertaking that with locally sourced wood. So they Absolutely. only they only pay the transport to ship their product off the island. They don't have to bring the wood in because it's already here. Absolutely. Kevin PC, who's the the chief of the Clahoos mm-hmm. First Nation, he he ran their sawmill for a little while before before he was the chief, and he and he says that he's been approached multiple times by companies wanting to buy truckloads of of lumber from Cortez. They just you know if we could sub- supply a truckload every week, they'd buy it. Um, so there's there's tons of opportunity, and it's expensive to get the logs off, but it's not so hard to get the lumber off. Mm-hmm. You leave a lot of the, the slab wood and the waste behind not waste but the the non-lumber behind and then you can stack it on a truck and transport it in a really easy way it's harder with logs because you got to get them out of the water and scaled so it sounds like you think there's a bit of headroom in that potential market that um given the lumber that we're producing if you have the capital to put the plant together to do the kiln drying and the processing um do you think that there's an opportunity for more than one person to get absolutely Absolutely. I'd say there's no question about it. It really is just a matter of how much marketing people can do and how many networks that people can can tie into. And I, I don't want to just say that it's just kiln drying and planing or, or tongue and groove or paneling mm-hmm. or flooring. There's there's all kinds of other opportunities. People could sell entire house kits or they could sell beams or they could make picnic tables or they could make all kinds of things out of, you know, out of wood products higher higher and higher value added but i'll give an example there's a sawmill that buys hemlock logs and fir logs from the cowichan community forest and he sells the fir beams to europe and he sells the fir beams to europe for twenty seven hundred dollars a board foot for beams which is wait a minute. Which is twenty seven. And if if you sell a hundred dollars a board foot. Yeah, the market on Cortez. If you if it's twenty seven hundred dollars per thousand board feet. Sorry, that, it's usually better. measured okay. in thousand. 
$2.70 a board foot. Whereas a board, just a rough board, is a dollar a board foot. So $2,700, it's a lot less milling to make a beam than it is boards because you've got to slice, mm-hmm. slice, slice, slice to make the boards. Whereas you can make a beam by just making a few cuts. Mm-hmm. And they pay all the shipping. Really? As soon as the wood comes off of his mill and sits there, they take it from there and pay for everything else. And so immediately you're thinking, why can't we be doing that here? And he's selling his hemlock beams to Alberta. And it's the same thing. They're they're paying him. They're paying him for the wood and they're paying for all the shipping. So there's tons of opportunity. We just need to tap into those markets. You know, in Vancouver, Victoria and beyond, there's 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 a lot of demand for sustainably sourced wood. The the um, Green Building Council that the Canadian and American Green Building Council have a rating system for buildings called LEED. Leadership mm-hmm. in Energy and Environmental Design, and one of the credits is for sustainably sourced wood. And consistently, the builders in Vancouver, high rises and condos, can't get the credits for sustainably sourced wood because there isn't any. So oh. we just, you know, like if you had one big condo building that was fifty or sixty units, you know, that might be a year's worth of milling for one miller on Cortez. If we could just make those connections, so I think mm-hmm. that I think the untapped potential market is is really big and. As our forests are harvested more and more and we have good quality, larger logs that we can mill from, I think that's only going to increase. It seems to me also that if we have success stories along those lines of value-added enterprise that is kind of symbiotic with the forestry partnership, that it would be very encouraging to other communities who would see that as a successful example and they'd be more encouraged to try forestry partnerships of their own. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a community for a network of community forests called the BC Community Forest Association. And there's stories that are, you know, shared in, in, mm-hmm. in amongst those, those organizations. And so there's, I, yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's tons of potential and room for inspiration and networking. And if um, any listeners are getting kind of charged up and enthusiastic about this, is there, are there avenues by which they can participate, support, get involved, um, be a part of it, contact information, that kind of stuff. Definitely. Our our website is is www.cortezforestrypartnership.com. All one word. All one word. Cortezforestrypartnership.com and my contact information is on there. There's also the Community Forest Cooperative. They have a website as well and all the directors are are available for contact on their website. That's the Cortez Community Forest Co-op. And several of the people who are on the board of the co-op, as it being a co-op, are in the value-added or in the forestry or in the wood business. And so there's lots of great, great people to talk to. Mm-hmm. And and also the Clahoos First Nation, they are also trying to build up their value-added sector. They're, um, I think they're always looking for, for people to get involved. And I think part of their their issue is capacity because they have markets and they've been approached for markets. It's just a matter of getting getting their infrastructure built and their investment made so and 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 people in place to, to meet the demand that they have so there's i think there's lots of opportunity well that's terrific we're coming up on the hours so you have any um extra thoughts something that we haven't covered that you'd like to tell people about i think one thing that we didn't really emphasize is just how unique it is that we have a a, a general partnership rather than a limited liability partnership mm-hmm Limited li- liability partnerships are a more common corporate undertaking yeah. where you might have the municipality of 
some municipality like Whistler or mm-hmm. or a, a smaller community that has a set up a corporation to log and make profit, and then the revenue goes back, goes mm-hmm. back to the company, and they have a management team, and it's all arm's length, limited liability. The the partnership was set up as a general partnership because the board wants to be really hands on, and really be involved in how everything is set up, and and really have a lot of say in the not necessarily day to day operations, but just the overall process, mm-hmm. and. That requires a lot of care. That re- requires a lot of cooperation. And I and I want to commend every single director who's been a part of the partnership from the time it was founded in 2013, 12, excuse me, until now. People have really stepped up and been good communicators and good listeners. And I have it's it's the best board I've been involved with in my life. And uh, just to close that out, I would I'd also like to recognize that a lot of community forests are and, and are, are being led by our First Nations and the Clahouse First Nation was very generous in inviting the community to form a 50-50 partnership and, and work together. Mm-hmm. The Clahouse appoints three directors and the co-op appoints three directors to the partnership board and uh, the, the Clahouse have been tremendous to work with and, and the, just this opportunity to work together it's it's really big and it's it's bigger than I can put into words mm. and it's, it's been great working with them. And, and in particular, Kathy Francis, who was one of the longstanding Clahouse people who, who's made this happen and most recently stepped down as the director, as, as the chair and Bruce Ellingson, who was also one of the people who've been involved for the last 25 years. He's still involved, which is amazing. And, and chief Kevin PC, who's, who's, who's really a, a huge supporter. He's, a, he's a director as well. It's it's really good. It's a really good team, and I, I, these people put a lot of time in, and they and they put a lot of heart into it, and it's 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 pretty. It's probably one of the best things, I've been involved with. Oh, that's really exciting. Well, I'm going to thank you very much for taking the time to come into the studio and talk about actually what is I think one of the most exciting things happening on Cortez. So it's really nice to hear more about that. Well, thanks, Dee. This is Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and you have been listening to Cortez Currents. This Saturday afternoon show is rebroadcast on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and is also available in podcast form at cortezradio.ca. Once again, the opinions and views heard on this show are those of the host and guests and are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio Society. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. Thanks for listening.